Hi, this is Rob Shank. You're listening to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of the namesake for the sponsor of this podcast, the Dietrich Bunhofer Institute, this brave, brilliant, young German church leader in the time uh, before and during World War II, the rise of National Socialism in Germany, he would oppose Adolf Hitler and his racialized tyranny and would lose his life in that struggle, but not before leaving us with a wonderful legacy of literature, correspondence, uh, a role model for us during these times when a new kind of Christian fascism looms on the horizon, maybe is already here. And so we need Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his insights, uh, his uh, experience, uh, and his uh, legacy of Christian ethics and moral courage now, maybe more than ever, definitely a figure in church history uh, ahead of his time, for his time and ahead of his time and certainly a gift to us in our time. So uh, that what we try to do on this podcast is talk uh, with uh, guests who reflect a new kind of Bonhoeffer leadership in our day, uh, one that's peculiar to our own time, and that certainly uh, includes my guest today, who is a friend, I would like to call her a sister in Christ, uh, a colleague, a much admired colleague, uh, an author, movement leader, ministry, oh, seasoned uh, ministry veteran uh, from Denver, Michelle Warren, who is uh, in the family because she is a senior fellow of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. And Michelle, I'm gonna say a quick hi and let you say hi, and then I'm gonna to go to the formal introduction. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Rob. It is so good to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk today. Well, thank you for accepting the invitation because we will be all the richer for it. Let me read your formal uh, bio on your book, which we're going to talk a lot about during this conversation. Michelle, I'm, I, I, I don't think I've ever asked how you pronounce this is your maiden name. <laughs> yeah, it's Ferrigno. Ferrigno, okay. Ferrigno, I to make yeah. sure. That's the American pronunciation, Ferrigno. Yeah, so in Italiano, it would yes, be... Yes, Ferrigno. Ferrigno. Yes. Oh, magnifico. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Michelle Ferrigno Warren is the president and CEO of Virago Strategies, a consulting group that provides strategic direction and project management for civil engagement campaigns alongside communications affected by racial and economic injustice. She helped found Open Door Ministries in downtown Denver to address poverty addiction, and homelessness. She is the author of 
The Power of Proximity, which I read before I read this most recent title, Join the Resistance. And right away, I'm going to ping the ding here because I always do when we find a nexus with our namesake Bonhoeffer, who, of course, was part of the resistance in his time and is known as a Nazi resistor. So when we get to the book, we're going to talk about that little connection. But first, Michelle, let's talk about you, because you're a friend, you're a member of the family. This is a kitchen table conversation. And I like our folks out there listening to the podcast to know you like I know you. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about Michelle Warren? Your whole story, it's quite a harrowing and epic one. I don't think we have enough time for me to tell the entire story, but I do, think, I do think my name, you know, says a few things, you know, born in the 70s, Michelle, you know, with the Beatles song, Ferrigno or Ferrigno is my Italian American heritage originally from New York, transplanted into Denver halfway through high school. And then Warren, I am a wife and a mother of three adult children and Yeah, my husband David and I are celebrating our 30th anniversary in June. Congrats. We have individual journeys and and obviously a journey of oneness these last 30 years. And both of us have individual, you know, callings on our life that that really met and merged really powerfully. Honestly, I'm just really grateful for David and just for his powerful witness of his love for Christ and for the church. And we decided to marry our college sweethearts. We married young and moved to Dallas. And I was a seventh grade math teacher in Dallas Independent School District. And the reason that's really important was I had grown up in private Christian schools in a predominantly almost exclusively white community, um, guarded neighborhoods. So you had to have permission or know somebody to get in through the gate. And that was my upper middle class, lower upper class um, upbringing. And David is the son of a pastor and a, t- and a teacher who are, he now is a trustee at Cedarville University. So we married and we both had attended Cedarville, have a math degree, because of course, why not? Um, and, a and for the degree. uninitiated, Tell us just a little sidebar on Cedarville. Oh, yeah. So Cedarville is a private Christian um, university in southwestern Ohio, very conservative roots, historically kind of fundamentalist that now is more, you know, referred to as evangelical. Um, Yeah. So that's where we both met. And then we married from there. I married a legacy family. Like I said, my father-in-law is a trustee. My sister-in-law is the first and only female vice president. I vacation in Cedarville once a year for all those 30 years (laughs) because my husband's family lives right across the street. So this isn't just going to a school. This is a part of a culture. Um, And so when the two of us moved into Dallas, moved to Dallas, we moved into an all African-American section eight housing um, apartment. And then I taught in the local public schools, seventh grade math. And while he went to seminary, we were beginning to step into what we thought was building bridges across racial and economic um, cultures, which we were doing, but really we were getting ready to go into the biggest education of our life and what it really means to be a neighbor. You know, God's second commandment, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And we think, I think pretty highly of myself. I think Dave thought pretty highly of himself. And, you know, we were beginning to realize that we didn't think as highly of our neighbors as we ought to, and that there was so much more that there was to the world, to the way it operated, to who was in it, and how we should position ourselves. So we chose to live in that community, of course, for three years, moved up to Denver, and stayed in a community very reminiscent of that for the last 26. And that's really, really important. And that's the reason I wrote the book I wrote five years ago, because you cannot fix problems you don't understand. And when I looked at the community from an outsider, all I did was see problems. And I had the narrative of what would have caused that problem. And, you know, my, it was very, yeah, I just had my own culture, my own theological bent and going into that community, I just really didn't understand. And so I wanted to be a good student and a good neighbor. And in learning that proximity became very, very powerful because if you can't fix problems, you don't understand. then how will you ever join Christ and join community in that work of repair? Well, you do it by leaning in and becoming proximate. And as you do it, it strips out your ego. At least it should. It strips out your ego, your preconceived ideas. It detangles culture from theology and you become you know, a better, I mean, for me, it became a better follower of Christ, but really, truly loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is so connected that I just really knew that the way I was supposed to love Jesus was to really love my neighbor well. And part of that is serving my neighborhood. And part of it is being a student of my neighborhood and really joining alongside the community to work together towards its collective flourishing. So yeah, in Denver- And until I visited with you in Denver recently, I could only imagine those mm -hmm. stories and places that I had heard you reflect on. Then you took me around on a tour and showed me the real places with the real people and the real and wonderful experiences you've had there. And I imagine that your community has ministered to you, has given as much to you as you have given to it. And so just in terms of a timeline, because I start losing, uh, you know, appreciation for the years now, what years are we talking about? When did you first land in Denver? Yeah, we landed in Denver in 96. So we had a brand new baby. My 26 year old was a newborn. And we joined alongside a church called Open Door Fellowship. And the church had been around for about 10 years, and it was kind of dubbed the homeless church in Denver. And the reason that actually is somewhat of an honor in some ways, um, it's, I, there's nothing pejorative when I you know, think through that or when we, when we refer to ourselves as that. One of our pastors would say, we're, we're a rescue mission trying to be a church. So we're not a rescue mission. You know, there's a place for that. There's a place for that kind of outreach. But a church connotates this whole cradle to grave ministry of walking collecti collectively together. And you are you are 100% correct, because if you're a part of a community, especially as long as we had been, there is no way that your brokenness, that your humanity can be somehow filtered out, especially when you're in such an under-resourced community. Like our church was literally held together with like a prayer and duct tape. You know, we weren't like this well-resourced church financially. We were really rich. 
but not in money. And so working to learn to love each other well and to love our community well was this beautiful organism that was a part of Open Door Fellowship. So when we came and we started the home for homeless teen girls, it was never outside of the community of the church. And it was this idea that the church was dreaming up, how can we impact our community? And from the struggles of that church birthed ministry. So that was the thing that we started in. And then the next year started the community development nonprofit called Open Door Ministries that is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. So my husband's been the executive director. And here's the thing, Rob, when you go to an elders meeting as a 25 and 26 year old couple, and you project this idea of flow charts and this is what we think, you know, the elder board, which probably was an average of like age 40, they were all looking at us. They weren't dumbfounded because we had started that other house and they just kept smiling and saying, yeah, it's supposed to be you. We knew this was going to happen. This is what we wanted. You know, we've been praying for so many years that God would bring the right person. And we believe you're the right person. The reason they're smiling and almost laughing is like, we've been looking for somebody who's our age, you know, 26 year old David, 25 year old Michelle. Yeah, it's supposed to be you. So why don't you go ahead and start? And it was this, and it was kind of a joyous, like, yeah, knock yourself out, kids. Let's see what you can do. We know that it's what God wants. This isn't what we thought, but hey, let's some, let's some, let's not despise the youth. Let's let let's set them free. I'm pretty sure if anybody had known what Open Door Ministries was going to grow in its capacity, and you got to see just a small fraction. But the scale of it, it's breathtaking. The scale <laughs> of it is breathtaking. Building after building that you took me to, the houses, the the office structures, the, the community center that it is. Uh, wow, it was breathtaking, Michelle. I think it's just always such a good reminder. Like we really should never despise the dreams that God places. You know, we see in Joel this prophecy that someday, you know, that this things are going to be different. God's going to repair. You know, the years the locust has have. Um, and God's spirit is going to descend and young people are going to dream dreams and prophesy and good things are going to happen. And, you know, in Acts, when, when Pentecost happens, there's that remembering of the words in Joel. And I know it was David and I, but I forget it was David and I, you know, in that room, I just smile and say that the Holy Spirit is powerful and that he will do his work despite what we think with the age and gender and socioeconomic and you know all the different racial cultural things that put us as human beings we want to kind of compartmentalize and and almost doubt that his work can even be accomplished. So I remind myself of that story because it is true. If we had known what it was going to be, I doubt very much they would have handed it to a 25 and 26 year old. There was very little to risk when it was just a vision, but God saw fit to just bless that work. And it isn't a work of a couple. This was not just David and I, this was an entire community. And we have always felt the weight of that. And we have served and we have been served and we have loved and we have been loved. You know, we have even done a little rescuing and we have been desperately rescued over and over again. We have had conflict at times that we thought what God had done was not going to be resolved yet the spirit of forgiveness and humility to teach us all, not just David and I, to teach us all to stay, to humble ourselves, to get the ego out of the room and to really try to continue to practice being the body of Christ has been the most beautiful place to get a spiritual education. 
well, here's where I ring the Bonhoeffer bell again, because, of course, he said that Jesus was consummately the one for others. And you guys embody that and embodied it in those years and those you were working with, part of your community from the stories you've told, from what I saw there, have done the same, given themselves to you and to one another. And the whole idea of community and mutual dependence and the giving of yourselves to each other, it's just a beautiful model of what the church really is to be. And I remind people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, our namesake, quit attending conventional church because he said it's no longer the church. It's not mm -hmm. what it claims to be. Mm -hmm. And he looked for where the church truly manifested itself. And of course, that's in the kind of community you just described. But you didn't get stuck there because you continue to evolve and expand in your own work. And, you know, I hardly knew you in reference to Denver. I've seen you down at the southern border. I've seen you in Washington, D.C. I've met up with you in New York. So you're kind of the ubiquitous Michelle Warren. And then I found <laughs> out, oh, you actually have roots somewhere in Denver. <laughs> but your ministry has expanded far beyond that. Dallas, I bump into you in Dallas, uh, in Texas. So tell us about that. There came a time when your ministry, your life and work, started going beyond the boundaries of Denver as full as it was for you. Yeah, yeah, that was probably one of the hardest decisions. Um, I'm still very much rooted in my community. You'll see me every Sunday I'm in town. You know, I'm either like playing backup keyboard. You know, sometimes I preach and lead worship, but for the most part, you know, I'm we doing missions. Started plumbing yeah. the depths. I had no idea that you played. Oh yeah, keyboard. that's where I actually learned to get my brave on. Is anytime ding, you have to ding, lead ding. worship, an offer was a pianist. <laughs> That's right. As musicians and artists, we are prophetic in nature. Artists often see around the corner and are running ahead to, you know, throw themselves vulnerably out there, even though in the mid, I mean, as an artist, all I want to do is hide in a corner, but no, I've got, I mean, there's this tension of prophetic witness and putting yourself out there because it's the most honest place, but the fear of, you know, like, wow, that leaves me nothing to protect myself. Um, so that is a whole other conversation, Rob. Um, but yeah, I will just say as a teacher, as a direct, you know, nonprofit social service type provider within the church, a worship leader, a neighbor, of course, my kids are growing up and my kids are in the exact same school system and the same Sunday school. We didn't like uh, contract out, like we're going to go to the white church or the church that I'm familiar with to do these types of, I mean, we literally, we were all in. And we never changed that. That was a really important piece of our obedience. I don't think everybody has to do that, Rob. But for us, it was very evident that this was an issue of faith and trust that God would form and shape our family as a result of staying rooted in that community. So the reason I bring that up is that is who I am. And my church does not know me in D.C. Now, they know of me in D.C., 
But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do or what I write or where I speak. To them, I'm Michelle. I'm going to you know, bring you a meal when your baby's been born. I might probably sing at your grandma's funeral. Like, this, is, this is just the life and the ebb and flow of what I said, that cradle to grave bearing witness to each other's living and the real living. But the reason my life took a bit of a trajectory, and I, I hint at it in the power of proximity, but I really hit it and joined the resistance. Because, I mean, for your listeners, if they're into Enneagram, like I'm a solid one. There is no doubt. I am the biggest rule follower. I'm such a wonderful oldest child. Like literally, I am not going to do the wrong thing. Here's the crazy thing is I've continued to be asked to do culturally what might be the wrong thing as a good mother, as a good Christian woman. You know, like It's a series of, of brave steps, understanding that I obey a Christ, that his steps are going to order me, but it's going to look a lot different. And that was kind of how I ended up becoming like a national rabble rouser, not for the sake of rousing rabble because I'm a rebellious person, but because injustice continues to be the status quo. So I didn't have that kind of language when I was walking through it. You know, I finished seminary and we, you know, David and I came from a background that you only cared about individual spirituality and piety for eternal destination. That is really important. I mean, I still don't think that, I still think that's very, very important, but it became more individual holistic restoration to the spiritual, the mental, the emotional, and physical, which is how social justice type ministries were birthed in our community was we were realizing it's not just one individual who struggles with addiction or homelessness or lack of childcare. Like this is birthing our whole, you know, social system in this community needs sort of a social response. So it became and just a little asterisk there. You you recall for me as you say that Bonhoeffer in Sanctorum Communio, uh, his first dissertation, where he kind of lays the groundwork for not just his theology, but his soteriology, where he reminds us it's impossible to truly know Christ. So there are soteriological implications here, apart from community. And what you just described in your own spiritual formation, which was mine for way too long, which is this singular focus on individual salvation, me and Jesus and my journey to heaven, period, like that's all that really matters, had to be deconstructed and reconstructed for you in a very real way in your real life experience. And I hope, I don't want to distract you now because I'm enjoying what you're saying too much, but at some point, if you would take us a little bit into what it was for you to move beyond that narrow, provincial, self-serving, really, mm -hmm. uh, soteriology, salvation thinking, but that can be later. I no, I mean, I think that's really a part of it. I mean, I felt desperate. I, I, I described this in my first book, that I felt like I was some kind of urban Santa, that all of what I had read in scripture and learned and had prepared so that now I could take this immersive, what we what best correlates to a missionary journey, not a social experiment, but like a mission, mission, missional um, step in, a missional journey. I was taking this big bag of stuff that I had. I don't mean literal stuff. I'm talking theological stuff. 
And it didn't take long. Like the first two things I probably threw out, you know, like that I was just like, that is about the stupidest answer to this problem, but this is what I've been trained to do. And so I just felt like I'm stupid, but this is what I've been told is supposed to work. And so I'm just throw these unhelpful gifts of scripture out until please, oh, thank God my bag is empty. And that was when the relief happened. I was like, good, I'm a good girl. I've done what I've told. You've been telling me that this is the reason people are poor, that this is the reason people, we. Have, I mean, so I'm just like, okay. And I'm not a harsh person. So it wasn't like I was trying to throw the Bible. I'm not into apologetics. You know, I feel like Jesus can defend himself, but that doesn't mean I don't think that scripture or Christ meets us at our, at our brokenness. I was just so dumb and so un, unexposed to the deep pain and injustice and oppression in our world that when I finally had worked through everything, I was like, oh, thank God, then I can go home and say it doesn't work. And, and you're right, deconstruction and reconstruction. So I'm a mathematician and philosophy and logic are built on good thinking and good thinking deconstructs with the intention of reconstructing. And you have to reconstruct. So how, where am I going to reconstruct? Because I truly believe Jesus is the answer. And I do believe his word is relevant. I continued to filter it through scripture and just God was changing my lens. Thank God. You know, and I was listening to, you know, black preachers and I was listening to brown preachers and I was listening to people who weren't preachers at all, but didn't come from any of my experiences and they were preaching to me informally, right? And so they're helping me reconstruct my faith in a way that is actually appropriate and makes sense. And I'm not saying that that was a one-time thing. There's this, you know, continuous, how am I reading the commands of Christ? How am I living out my witness of, of salt and light, Christ's salt and Christ's light in the world? And when I don't, it doesn't seem to work. It's not because the word isn't good. It's because the way I am viewing it and entering in is not helping. And so it helps me kind of go back. A lot of that is ego. You know, in the culture that I come from, I'm not going to say that this is true of your culture, but maybe you'll find it true that I grew up telling myself I had to be a knower. Like you don't go to school to learn, you go to school to demonstrate what you do know, which is why you don't want to ask, you know, too many questions. You don't want to look stupid. You know, the idea that you aren't a knower is humiliating. And here's the thing is there's literally way, again, you can't fix problems you don't understand. So you have to admit, I'm not a knower. I'm a learner and I'm curious and I'm allowed to be broke and I'm allowed to be broken. And that is really where I'm going to grow. And so that's, you know, kind of that answer to the question is it was done in real time with real feet and real people and going back to challenging me, challenging my, my faith, me challenging the way I've seen and read things. And I'm still growing in that. You know, it's it, this whole blindness to sight journey is literally that's where you're going to see through a glass darkly. And someday, you know, I just believe because of the work of the spirit and because of my community and their graciousness that it's not as cloudy as it once was. Um, and that is part of the reason I added systemic restoration to my 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 hopes, my desires, my dreams, my efforts, and my conviction that beyond individual piety is holistic individual restoration, social restoration, and systemic restoration. So I was left with, okay, I've got all these problems at the world, and I'm not going to tell you all the things that I was doing. It was just silly. Um, I don't mean a number. I just meant like all of the things that were butting up against my perceived ideas and you know my new world, and I was settling into a really beautiful place. My youngest was 
you know, two, I think. And if anybody's had three kids, especially as a mother, you know, literally running around trying to build great things <laughs> and keeping three kids at tow because you don't have any money for childcare. They're just a part of the work. You know, I, I realized I needed better training. So Dave has a THM from Dallas Seminary. That's pretty awesome. Not super helpful when building a nonprofit community development corporation in a very poor. He is naturally gifted in that way. He is very, he didn't need to go to get an MBA. He just thinks that way. It makes him a very weird pastor, but amazing at his job as a 26-year-old, you know, throwing the flow charts that just naturally came from his soul. So super, super talented. You can see it. It's so obvious, well-executed. It's been the evidence is right there. When you took me for that tour, I said, wow, this is this is not just the fruit of big hearts and uh, humble spirits, but brilliant, brilliant mind and a real skill set. Yeah. David, you know, you, if he was standing on the corner of Open Door Ministries and somebody were to come up, he wouldn't say, oh, that is exactly what we thought you would come out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Like, so that's like totally crazy on its own. But when it came to this deciding point, when I realized that whatever we did, whatever people did, whatever programming, however they kind of like submitted to you know, because it's their decision, right? I'm going to try to figure out, you know, what God wants for me. I'm going to try to figure out how I'm going to heal, you know, things that have been happening in my past through my addictions. I'm going to, you know, get my education. It didn't matter. It seemed like they were always butting up against what I realized was more of a system that was perpetually leaving them out. And those systems, you know, leave out people who are poor, leave out people who are immigrants, leave out people, you know, that are impacted by racism. So, I mean, those are like three major streams that social concerns grow out of. And I had a decision to make. I was a young, young woman, a young mother, um, ministry, probably just about maybe 10 years. Um, and I thought I need more of a formal education. Do I? And I decided I'm going to think, do I want to go to seminary? Or do I want to go to a secular institution? And I felt like I needed to at least say that my gifts are in teaching and preaching. They're just very easy. They walk in the room. Um, and I realized that I, why would I go to a seminary when women really don't have the opportunities to preach, even in an egalitarian place? It's just very, very hard. You know, I just didn't think that was the right place. In my mind, I thought, well, we have plenty of people in the work that we do that have gone to seminary, but like you need serious lawyers and public policy people. So I started looking into that. I tell a little bit of that story in my book, Join the Resistance, because it was scary and it was hard and it felt weird. But I also knew I needed some really good skills. So I decided not to go into law because one, it was $50,000 more than my MPA. And I realized that I didn't need that degree to be able to shape policy. So when I went and got my master's in public administration, I purposely studied multi-sector collaborations and public policy formation. That's really important because I was watching a lot of bridging of social capital happening as a result of open door ministries. And that is when you've got, you know, this group that's got some capital. I mean, there's financial capital within social capital, but then you start bridging outside of your culture. I was like, wow, multi-sector collaboration is kind of where it's at. Business, nonprofit, public working together, you know, different types of people, you know, like this is great. People who are directly impacted need to be informing those who are having the power, like creating and catalyzing tables of diversity so that we all can really listen to how the policies that have been shaped are harming and hurting people, you know, and, and doing that public policy work. I mean, that's what I want to do. So I did that. 
you know, I had no clue that politics is really the the name of the game. Like that's how you get things done. And that's really the reason. Um, but I also do know that the t- stakeholder tables are not as diverse as they should be. So I went and got that degree to help the city that I loved, help the community that I love. And I got to do that for a few years. But what happens when you are working with a lot of faith leaders and one of your friends gets put on Obama's faith you know, based and neighborhood neighborhood partnership council. And now that you're talking to a bunch of people who do theology, but maybe not public policy and don't have big, you know, organizations that might have like a government person, you know, you get a lot of texts. Hey, Michelle, what does this mean? You know, can you explain this? And I was always happy to help my pastor friends around the country. Um, this particular friend was the president of CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. And so I just kept doing that. I did it for several years. I also had a side hustle and I didn't know you could get paid for advocacy. Let me just start there. I never, I was raising kids. I was doing my, you know, my deal, leading worship, you know, running, helping support open door ministries, however I could. And now I have this degree that's supposed to help me in policy. And I was sitting at some mayoral boards and, you know, doing things in my community, but that in 2007 or eight, a lot of disparaging conversations were happening at the national level within Congress. Um, They are pushing against that current president. It was sort of a wing in his own party that was very anti-immigrant. And I, one of our house people at the time, we had seven US house people in Colorado came from an evangelical church that gave money to Open Door Ministries and several other organizations. And so the side hustle began, which is we have a discipleship problem. We're going to do everything that we can to speak to the pastors, to speak to the business leaders, to speak to elected officials, because we cannot just accept your money. And it wasn't just us, you know, a few of us gathered together, like we're accepting money and we need to do a better job of not just accepting the money and helping immigrants, but really disciple the people who are holding contempt in their heart. And so that started a lot of, and I say it was a side hustle because literally you take a busy woman and then you throw some more busyness on her. I mean, like it was hair on fire kind of stuff, but we were doing breakfast with business leaders. We were doing film series. I mean, I was doing some really great stuff and I was doing some really stupid stuff, but I was basically community organizing white evangelical pastors in their churches. I didn't want them to run the show and I didn't want them to be the the speaker So I paired it. I worked really hard to make sure that there were just as many immigrant um, churches with their pastors, as many of them in the room as there were white people. I always gave them the mic first. You're like, that's their story. You can't fix problems you don't understand. You're never going to understand it from a distance. Listen to these people and learn. You have a shared theology, but you don't have a shared life experience. The very meaning of disciple is (laughs) learner. And that that would set you up even for running for public office. And we don't have the time, but we're going to have to have another conversation so we can explore that drama uh, and very Always important drama. that you took. And, and maybe you can give it to us in a snippet because I want to get right to sure. join the resistance. I'm going to show it off here for the well, video. I'm going to show it off too. Uh, I don't have any tabs. <laughs> yeah. Is this showing up, by the way, uh, backwards? No. No. Is that funny? Know. Because I see it backwards. So I'm, uh, I see yeah. yours reading correctly. But um, I want to talk about Join the Resistance, yeah. which is subtitled Step into the Good Work of Kingdom Justice. 
which is what you did hook, line, and sinker. You were baptized into it, submerged into it in Denver. Then you take that out beyond the boundaries, both of your city and your state, into the rest of the country, and uh, even, I know, uh, internationally. But here's, here's the best way, folks, that I can introduce you to uh, Michelle's book, Join the Resistance, which I highly commend to you, not just for individual reading, please, mm -hmm. because that would kind of defeat the purpose. You should read it in community. Mm -hmm. Make it part of your home group or your book club or your church or faith communities reading exercises. It's really for more than just any one of us to read alone and individually. But here's how I describe it in my endorsement. Mm. And you made this so easy for me to write, Michelle. I think I wrote this endorsement quicker than I've ever written an endorsement for a book. Because mm -hmm. after reading your work and watching your life, uh, it, it, it just flowed naturally. So this is what I write about Michelle's book, Join the Resistance. Michelle Warren knows of what she writes. And I think you're as convinced of that after our conversation here so far. This book is rich in Bible-based theology, but even richer in real-life concrete practice based in Michelle's lived experience. Her humility and self-awareness show in her admission she doesn't know it all and still has much to learn about injustice. Still, she doesn't use ignorance to excuse inaction. Instead, Michelle takes what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the risky venture of responsible action, concerned more for the well-being of those who suffer in the margins than for her doing that action perfectly. You won't know everything after reading Join the Resistance, but you will know enough to step out in faith and help others pursue God's justice while deepening your understanding of it. This book is a gift to all who need justice and those who desire to help them find it. Thank you. That describes my impression after reading your work, Enjoying the Resistance. Michelle, can you give us, is it even possible to give us a summary of the book and, and your thoughts on the mission of the book itself? The, the book has a life of its own. It does work on its own, apart from you, even when you're sleeping or you're too busy to think about it, it's doing its work somewhere. W what is it you hope will be the result of producing this book? Yeah, I have a lot of hopes. I have a lot of hopes. One kind of clarion call is white Christian moderates no more. Wow, say more about that if you would. So yeah, Letters from a Birmingham Jail by the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who wrote from his heart in response to some white pastors who basically were saying, slow down. And there's a lot of labels those of us who lean into resistance get to discount our voice. But that letter, I am tired of hearing after 30 years of ministry, 
hearing the same things over and over again. You should read Letters from a Birmingham Jail. It's as applicable today as it was back then, 30 years of hearing that, Rob. And one of the, and you should read the Letters from a Birmingham Jail, my friends who are listening, if you have not. But the part, there's a lot that's scathing in that letter, although given humbly, very prophetically, you know, deep theologian, yeah, the real deal. Not liked or, you know, he's revered now, but my goodness, there's a reason he was murdered. So, I mean, not, I don't think it's a good reason, but I'm like, he was hated. Of course. Kind of so he talks about the people that he's the most frustrated with. It's the white Christian moderate who knows how, that it should be done better, who knows, but absolutely does nothing. And so my hope for this book is white Christian moderate no more that in our knowing, we will do it. And we won't create our own nonprofit. We won't create our own ego that this is what we're doing to save it. Again, this will be the third time I say it in podcast. You cannot fix problems you do not understand. You're never going to understand it unless you lean and become proximate. This book, Injustice Does Not Just Happen. It does not repair itself. You don't fall into the work of repair. You choose to step into it because it is a good work. It is an important work. Is it intentional work? And it is a mantle work in the sense that it has been being done since the beginning of time when everything that was created to be good and functioning and connected became broken. And then all of a sudden evil was on full display for the seeing. And then the practicing of who was better than who and who was going to serve the other and who was going to rule over. And we see it all the way after the fall. And then we hear a new message that we should be taking up in that mantle of post-Pentecost, but the prophets are continuing to foretell and foretell. So they are foretelling that there's going to be a time that the spirit is going to come. And just like the prophet Joel, you know, young people are going to rise up and we're going to have a heart of flesh and we're going to be a completely different people because the connector in Jesus has come and he will have completed the work and we finally have what we need to be communal. And so you see the prophets foretell, but then you hear them foretell the heart of God to a people that are not paying attention, to a people that are complacent with the status quo of injustice and oppression. And I, I refer to Amos in the book of his beautiful metaphor that some people don't even realize is from the book of Amos or from the Bible at all, you know, but that justice would roll down like a river and that righteousness like a mighty stream. Oh, that, oh, that. Because you know what? That's not how it's flowing. It is unjust and unrighteous. And so we need to pick up the mantle from the prophets and all of the people that have been named and unnamed. I love in Hebrews 11 because they're talking about all these great people of faith, but then there's like no names, just the description of all of the things that they would be doing to live as active Christians and witnesses by faith, believing in restoration and picking up that mantle and taking the charge until justice rolls down, until righteousness is the status quo, that we follow the example of Christ. And just in case we feel alone, we got Hebrews 12. Now, therefore, since you are surrounded, and I'm going to say it in my way, by so many amazing resistors, Bonhoeffer included, let us continue to run the race. 
Let us pick up the mantles that are intended for us to join the heart of God and his brokenness and his sadness, I should say. I shouldn't call that brokenness that, but the grief and the lament that all of creation is not seeing, that is not, you know, taking the invitation to come and follow the the gentle and lowly of heart and, and to really move in a collective chorus till there does not have to be any injustice. Now, I understand that if we were all to come together, maybe we could do an incredible work. I don't, I do believe that Christ is coming and that he is going to restore all things. But I also believe that he is actively working to restore and reconcile all things to himself through his work on the cross as an agent of peace, that that God connector where everything is restored, shalom, where nothing is broken. So this book is an invitation to join the work that has always been going on so that we who have the opportunity to speak in would not allow fear and would not allow kind of the rules of culture to dictate the day, but that we would be courageous and that we would step actively into the work, the good work of kingdom justice to join Christ with the belief that he is restoring all things and that all things goes beyond our individual, social, but includes systemic restoration. You know, I often remind Christians, fellow Christians, that while we confess that Jesus will return and and believe that deeply, he also directed us to occupy, to be busy, to be about our work. It's not enough to just sit and wait. And of course, much of the white evangelical church literally does that, although many exceptions to that rule, many of them. Who I'm a white evangelical. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and and I like to think of your book as a manual. It's mm-hmm. more than theory, although you've got plenty of theological foundation in here. And, and I think most, most Christians of every uh, shape and form look for that. We, we, we want a solid theological rationale, and it's here. Incidentally, I didn't mention it's published by InterVarsity Press. Mm-hmm. So that's an accomplishment all of its own. For those of you who aren't familiar with IVP, uh, just Google it, take a look, and you'll see why this is a singular achievement all of its own. Bravo, mm-hmm. Michelle, for getting published with InterVarsity Fellowship, with uh, InterVarsity Press, which is part of InterVarsity Fellowship or connected to, and has a whole history of its, a complicated history of its own, but is often courageously daring in this sphere and really deserve to be applauded Agreed. for that. Uh, and I do, uh, and, and I hope we sell a bajillion of your books for you because I want to convince them that it's also in their best business interest to, to continue uh, in, in this vein. Um, so <clears throat> tell us, first of all, uh, you know, you can get the book anywhere books are sold, of course, and especially, I know, I know, take a deep breath, everybody, Amazon.com. But when you do, when you do, you can name the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your charity of choice, and we'll get a little little ching of that which helps the Bonhoeffer Institute do its work so you can you can help 
uh, keep Michelle going with her great work. You can get really good work done yourself. And, and here's where I'm going to invoke Bonhoeffer again when he talks about moving from the phraseological to the real. It's not enough to just say the right stuff. You must do it. That's right. And that's what I think not only do you give us in Join the Resistance, you give us what we must say and believe and understand, but you connect it inseparably to what we must do. Uh, and, and, and so that's why I call it a manual. So first get the book and, and make it part of your group study and exercise and learning and equipping. And then let's talk about one step beyond that, Michelle. First of all, I know it's always a little scary to say, you know, how can people get in contact with you because your inbox is already overflowing <laughs> and, and you've got staff, but that's not even enough to manage it. But how can people connect with you? Let's let's put it that way and and maybe draw from other resources that you've produced and that your community around you has produced. And what's the most important thing you want to leave with our podcast family today? Yeah, I probably should start with that. Like I said, the work is a good work. We should not, as Christians, we should not be defined by our disengagement from the world, but our engagement. I don't want to be remembered as somebody who stayed in my basement with my canned goods and my flashlight waiting for the darkness to pass. I want me and I want my tribe. I want my children. I want people of Christian faith who are told that you are the light of the world to run to the darkness, to comfort it with the light just as you have been comforted and to not allow the status quo of oppression and injustice to be the, to be the, the rule of the day. And so that would be what I want us to leave with. But I also just want to say we this is a joyful work, even though a lot of times you spend losing, um, but it is a joyful work. And so we need to sing it in song. As a worship leader, I talk about song and the power of song and the struggle through the whole book and have, even have a Spotify playlist called Join the Resistance because of where I got my inspiration. I highlight at least one of the historic songs of the struggle um, that we have saw, sung to, to bring forth hope. So I just wanted to kind of add that there. You can always find me on my website. And actually I enjoy, I mean, I was a chief of staff. And so getting 4,000 emails a day is about right. You just don't know what to do when you don't. That if you 4, thing 15 or 20,000, you know, any given day, if the bill you have is going to make somebody excited or mad. So, so I'm not real worried about inboxes. I will say if you've emailed me and I didn't respond, something's wrong, but you can contact me through my website at michelleferignowarren.com. I am on social media. I'm not working too hard to be a social media influencer, but you can contact me um, through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at MCF Warren. On my website, there are a few things that I would encourage you to check out, though, is that I intentionally asked people to endorse my book, people who were in the work. And every single endorser, if you click on them, you will be directed to the site where they lead. 
And so if you're looking for ways to join and get in, go to my endorser page and, you know, you'll find my book easy. It's all there, you know, in the, on the website, but, but follow each one of these amazing champions that I believe history will remember them well, who have picked up the mantle, placed before them and continue to step into where God would ask them to step um, next. And Rob, I think both of us understand that journeys are you know, they, they come, we, we step at different times into different places, but that's the beautiful thing is that we are always stepping into new awarenesses and new obediences. And these are intentional choices to follow, you know, that welcoming call of Christ to, to go into the next place. So those are a couple of things. I, I think in the next two weeks, so I don't know when this podcast will go off, but hopefully by mid-November, I will actually have I have dolls together. It just needs to be built, but it's a website page that actually will direct you to national organizations that do grassroots community-led work for justice um, so that you can even find who you might want to join. Well, I think this will be one of our, what we call evergreen pieces that never expires. So at some point, somebody's listening and that page is up and accessible. We'll put all the links for you in the text surrounding the post here. So don't worry if you didn't get a chance to write any of that down, but I wanted you to hear it directly from Michelle. And we'll put all of that uh, in, in the space, in the text. You'll find it live links and we'll make sure we get that newest one uh, as soon as it's available. Michelle, you're a literal gift from God to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. You can see folks why we keep her close and value her so much. You've heard one-tenth, no, one-one-hundredth of what she <laughs> could share with us. So you want to get to her website. You obviously want to read not just her latest title, Join the Resistance, but uh, The Power of Proximity and read what she's posting. Uh, Michelle, thank you for the conversation today. This has been really rich and it won't be the last one that we have. And the next time, well, I hope to see you before March of 2023, uh, but we're gonna be together and in Oxford yes. and uh, we're gonna be tackling uh, once again, just as we are now on a daily basis, uh, the terrible scourge of Christian nationalism and how it threatens the church and all good people, and of course, uh, liberal democratic uh, societies, uh, structures everywhere. So uh, we've just really started our collaboration with you. Thank you for what you bring to the table and especially what you brought today. Thanks everybody for joining us. Hope you'll share this podcast out. You know who needs to hear it better than we do. So share it out post it, repost it, help Michelle to do her mission work and help to expand uh, the voice of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Michelle, man, we could go on another hour if we had it. But yeah. God bless you and David and your family and your community. And I'll see you again real soon. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I'm so grateful. Thanks, Rob.